how many people would you be willing to kill in order to save one from COVID? That is essentially the trade-off. That's the kind of question we should have been asking. As any economist will tell you, with every action, there is a cost. Yet few seem to contemplate that COVID policies could be more deadly than the virus itself, says Gigi Foster, a professor at the University of New South Wales School of Economics and co-author of The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why, and What to Do Next. They have literally outsourced their notion of what is true, what is moral, to a group. And they look to the group to dictate, with every new day, what is today's truth? What is today's moral action? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Gigi Foster, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Jan. Gigi, as we speak, the World Health Assembly is meeting, and it seems like what we call lockdown policies, various measures are being kind of implemented into World Health Organization policy, into the international health regulations. It seems like that's what's actually going to happen. I wanted to see if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, this is a very disturbing idea that we would overwrite basically decades of epidemiological knowledge and public health protection uh, wisdom with uh, a justification for what's happened over the last two years with this codification into guidelines that will presumably affect basically countries all over the world. Um, it is something that is not scientific. We don't yet have proof that lockdowns have worked. There still hasn't been that kind of evidence that's been presented that I've seen anywhere in any country because you basically can't generate that evidence. <laughs> they, 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 there is no evidence that these lockdowns are actually a good idea. There is simply this facile notion that keeping people away from each other somehow will slow the spread of viral transmission and that that's a good thing always, right? And that's simply not true, um, epidemiologically speaking. So I think it will take a while for this to be beaten out of the system and what is required is for people to speak up and say this wasn't working and good epidemiologists and caring doctors and people who see what's happening to make petitions. And those petitions are happening all over the world now to be sent to the, the World Health Assembly and say, look, this is non nonsense, we don't want to sign up to this. And, and essentially what I think it is is a political move, as so much has been in the last couple of years, being basically put in the clothing of a public health move. But it's a political move because it essentially justifies what politicians and health bureaucrats around the world have done to us over the last two years. And that's, uh, that's an excuse. It's not actually a, a proactive uh, health guidance, uh, you know, which is what it's been uh, sold as. So I do expect that as the world wakes up to the tragedy of what's happened over the last two years, that sort of initiative will fade away because the politicians will simply not be able to contend anymore that what they did was a good thing. There are large swaths of people, of population, even in places which had quite a varied response, let's say like the U.S., where we had states that locked down extremely hard. You have states that almost did none of that, yep. right? But still there's large swaths of population in the U.S. and certainly in places like Canada and Australia and New Zealand where there were, you know, there's still, I think, some level of lockdown. And the population seemed to think that this actually was a good idea. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in Australia, we had the amazing outcomes that some of the politicians that issued the worst and most ridiculous extreme measures were supported the most. Uh, we had a landslide victory for someone in Western Australia who had basically kept that whole state cut off from the rest of the country on the basis of maybe one or two or three cases. Um, it was just fanatically ridiculous. 
And, and the people did want very much to have a solution to what they feared, to this threat that they feared, and that's what they were being played on, basically. Right? So a lot of the Australian people, as well as a lot of the people of other countries, have simply been had during this period. They have been sold a lie by politicians, again, cloaked in the clothing of public health protection and science, TM. And in fact, what's happened is that the politicians have recognized the opportunity to depict themselves as the savior of the people from this perceived threat, COVID. So the fear that started in 2020, in March 2020, grew and, and grew and grew and became this force in people's lives to where they kind of forgot about a lot of other things that matter. And they focused on it so much and they wanted, they pressured the politicians to save them. And we've just had savior story after savior story. First it was, I'll protect you because you're locked down. And then it was, I'll protect you because I'm going to force you to wear masks. I'm going to protect you because I've got a vaccine. I'm going to protect you because it's always the same thing. And it's always sold in the language of public health protection together with this language of, if you don't follow, watch out because you are going to be labeled an antisocial person. You know, if you love your fellow man, you will do these things because it is about protecting people's lives, right? I mean, how offensive is that? You hijack this wonderful love that we have for each other and use it to support what is basically a political uh, initiative. It's, it's just, ugh, it, it's, it's one of these things that makes your stomach turn. I have friends in Canada, in Australia, probably not in New Zealand, but who will tell me, Jan, what are you talking about? This worked. Look, look how low the virus was in our countries. Yep. And look at the mess that happened in the U.S. and other places. Absolutely. And uh, this is one of those interesting features of the COVID period that you can point to and say, well, look, Australia was lucky. Or you can say, Australia actually got very unlucky. And an island nation like Australia has the capacity to close its borders and seriously decrease the amount of virus that comes in. So does New Zealand. And that's what we did. Once you start on that path as a politician, you're essentially starting on the path of, of withholding yourself from the rest of the world and letting the rest of the world pay the price of developing herd immunity, doing the technological innovations and whatnot that can help us to fight the virus better, waiting until the less virulent variants arise. You know, you're sort of sitting back. It's called free riding in economics, right? And you're allowing the people to believe that they're protected in this little bubble rather than being part of the rest of humanity. Because eventually, when you open your borders, I mean, COVID going away completely was never on the cards. From at least April or May of 2020, we knew there were huge animal reservoirs. We knew that this was just something that was going to be with us forever. So zero COVID was a nonsense. So you knew you had to open the borders at some stage. And the longer you can delay that, the more you can continue to paint yourself in the short run as a politician as the savior. Look, we have low counts. And of course, you don't have to kill your economy as much, although in Australia we had very, very severe lockdowns, including in Melbourne, which I think was about the most lockdown city in the world um, during the COVID period. But you, you, know, you can say, oh, well, we didn't have as many economic effects and the virus didn't take as many people and therefore I'm, I'm you know, doing a great job. Now, this is the classic confusion of correlation and causation. So yes, it's true that at the same time that we were having the lockdowns and doing the border closures in Australia, we also had reasonably low compared to the rest of the world, effects in terms of COVID deaths and even infections. And also we had a reasonably good economic performance for a couple of years. But that doesn't mean that the things we did were what caused those results necessarily to, in the long run, be something we'd be proud of. What we basically did was delay 
the wave of deaths that we could have had and gotten over with in 2020. And we kind of, because of our uh, putting ourselves in our bubble, were able to not seem as though we were having any serious economic effects mm. for a couple of years. And now we're going right back into you know, the same kind of economic distress that the rest of the world is now experiencing. So we had a couple of years of la, 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 right, of just pretending that this was you know, we were going to somehow be magically immune from, from both the viral effects and the economic effects, but now it's coming. If you look right now at infections and deaths in Australia, and even at the economic indicators like inflation, it, you know, it does not look good at all. And that's what we're in for, unfortunately. One thing you could argue, perhaps, right, is that the virus has changed from alpha to, and then delta and so forth. And it's, yep. Omicron is clearly, I think most people agree now, a milder form, yep. right? Um, but more in, spreads much quicker, yep. right? And so you could say, well, we saved the Australian population from the really tough viruses early on, and now it's just Omicron. It's almost like in Bill Gates' own words and others, it's like a kind of vaccine, yes. right? So this is an argument I've heard as well. Um, and also you could just save, you know, save the population until there is a vaccine and then you give them the vaccine and in theory you have fewer people dying, right? Although again, if you look at how many people are dying in Australia, there's still quite a lot right now. Um, the problem is that that ignores the fact that all of these actions we take with the closing of the borders and the domestic lockdowns, in Australia we also had a huge amount of fiscal outlay to support people who are kicked out of their jobs. These actions have costs. They have costs, right? And, and, and nowhere was that actually factored in to the policymaking in Australia. Even now, I mean, a, a week ago, I was on one of our national TV programs, and still the focus was on how many people have been saved from COVID deaths, rather than how many people have we killed with our policy response. And that is the question. How many people would you be willing to kill in order to save one from COVID? That is essentially the trade-off. That's the kind of question we should have been asking because people directly die and they, are, they suffer so much that it's, when you aggregate across the entire population, that's equivalent to having deaths experienced when you take these very draconian actions. And so you, know, you have people who should have gone to hospital to get care for their strokes or their heart attacks, who had the cancer screenings that were missed. We know all of these stories about crowded out healthcare. And people sort of just wave their hands, but that means deaths. Right? That means deaths. So you're killing some people in order to save others, supposedly. And, and what, do they not count because they're not COVID deaths? So public health should be about all of public health. For all different dimensions of health, right, we have to have a concern. And if we don't, we are being heartless. We are, we are ignoring suffering in our midst. And that's what's happened. So yes, we may have, in fact, delayed the onset of COVID and thereby enabled the Australian population to be exposed only to a, or mainly to a milder variant when they are more vaccinated, sure. It's possible we could have lost an extra few hundred people if we had had those, that wave come through first. But again, if we had taken an optimal policy response where we protected the people who are actually vulnerable to this virus, significantly vulnerable, so the older people, the people with comorbidities, which was clearly the right thing to do, even in March 2020, that was clearly the right thing to do, then we would have had far fewer deaths than we've had now. So even if it were the alpha wave, which, you know, was supposedly super scary, but if you look at the data, again, it's 
for people under 50 who are healthy, this is a flu virus, even alpha, right? So it, it's just this very disproportionate focus on how many people have we saved from COVID and, oh, COVID is the big danger, so it's a good thing that is less virulent now. Well, the virulence has decreased a little bit, but there's this staggering amount of cost that we have imposed on populations that really has not yet been reckoned with. And, and this is why we are seeing this World Health Assembly move towards you know, codification of lockdowns. There is still not an acknowledgement of the human costs of lockdowns, which are gargantuan relative to the benefits that they could possibly deliver, even in a, an island nation situation like Australia. And, and very briefly, right, because you have actually been in the business of calculating said costs. Yeah. How does this, you know, how does this come out? Um, so for Australia, I've done a cost-benefit analysis of lockdowns with the help of Sanjeev Sablok, who was a, a Victorian Treasury economist before he left because they wouldn't let him speak freely about this. Um, and we've produced it. We have the executive summary on the web, and it's 145 pages. Uh, and what we find after tabulating and, and, and calculating, trying to quantify all the various dimensions of costs that lockdowns policies actually cause people to pay, we calculate that lockdowns are about 30 or 35 times more costly than what they could possibly have delivered in benefits. So, like in terms of human life? In terms of human life. 35 times? Yes. 35 times. Uh, the number is actually 36 in the, in the paper at the moment. But I say over 30 because, of course, estimates change. We take, you know, you have, when you do these things, you have to make best guesses about a whole range of different, you know, factors, right? You're dealing with the data you have, which is imperfectly measured and, and never exactly what you would like. And, you know, we do the best that we can, as economists do in bureaucracies around the world, to try to evaluate a policy. This is the standard approach. Cost-benefit analysis is the standard way in which policies that are implemented by governments get evaluated and then defended. We never saw it for lockdowns. I've still not seen it. Not in the U.S., not in Australia. And the reason is because anyone, anybody with an ounce of economics training who starts to go on the path of doing a cost-benefit analysis of lockdowns realizes very quickly, as I did in August 2020 when I did a very brief one for the Victorian Parliament, that there's no way lockdowns can pass a cost-benefit test. There's no way. They are just too costly. And that's what we knew before 2020. That was why in our pandemic management plans before 2020, lockdowns of healthy populations were just not even on the table. No way. Way too costly. I think when we were talking offline, you said something like, like even with Ebola. Yes, even with Ebola, some localized quarantines of sick people and people who have been exposed to sick people sometimes have been useful, right? But even then, there are serious costs and, and you have to weigh them up and you certainly would never be locking down the entire healthy population in a country because an Ebola outbreak is there. No. That, that destroys your economy, it destroys your social relations, it breaks up families, it causes huge stress, it decreases your immunity. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why this is not a good idea. If people would like to protect themselves from COVID, a better way to go is think about, hmm, how do I take care of my health? What are you eating every day? Are you going out in the sun? Are you exercising? Are you sleeping well? Are you drinking a lot of water? Making sure that you're, you know, have healthy relations and, and you're feeling positive about your friends and family, invest in your relationships. These are the things that promote our immunity and our, therefore our ability personally to throw off infections. That's what we should do instead of this process of let me rope myself off from the rest of my, my species and, and protect myself with masks and vaccines and, and you know, a, a face, face shield and all of these other inhumane things. It makes us inhuman. I mean, we worry about AI, but I worry about that sort of thing. That destroys our humanity. 
You know, as you're talking right now, I can't help but think, you know, the safest place for an airborne virus would be to be outside. We had, there were all sorts of policies, right? Where, you know, I remember seeing like people being accosted while hanging out alone on the beach. Um, we had that you know, in Australia the, too. The, the, the flip side of it is that the policies were stay inside, stay separate. But of course you can't among family and so forth because you don't, you know, you're not, you're not in that kind of situation. It's almost like these policies were kind of really, in every way, the opposite of what you should be doing. Exactly, exactly. And particularly for people in multi-generational households or poorer families where, you know, the children were exposed to the elder people and the children maybe were out of school as well and didn't have a computer to be on. So you're also holding people back in the longer run. It's not just the short-term costs, which are gargantuan, but it's also you're exacerbating the existing inequality in a society. Because people like you and me, who have functional families and you know comfortable homes and plenty of money to buy laptops to zoom in on everything, we're fine, right? And we can continue to go for our runs and we might break the rules occasionally and whatever, right? And we can afford to continue to buy good food. But the family that was already struggling in early 2020 because of any number of things, you know, difficult relationships, substance use, unskilled and difficult to find a job, you know, kids who don't have enough space in the home to just have their, you know, their study and whatnot, they were the ones who felt the impact of this stuff the most. And so it's this, it's this incredibly uh, regressive policy as well as being just inhumane. It's regressive in the sense of increasing inequality on everything and going forward. So the kids who were taken out of school who had nice comfortable places to continue to learn and had parents who would supplement all of the instruction that they weren't getting anymore or weren't getting as well from school, they'll be better, they'll be okay relative to the kids who just you know, had nothing when they went home. Where both parents were working or... Exactly. Know, that, yeah. or, or, you know, they just didn't have a desk and they mm -hmm. don't, don't have any support and, you know, the structure of school was helping them. Sometimes a lot of kids in, a, in, in, in the U.S. particularly get their best meal at school. So, <laughs> I mean, what are we doing? <laughs> we're taking kids out of a protective environment and, and we're exposing them to, you know, something that is much worse for them. And we know this. We know schooling helps children. Of course it does. So these basic facts of basic realities we've just forgotten and again with the bludgeoning of people if you don't follow the rules you're antisocial no if you go along with this inhumane policy combination that's in antisocial that's anti-humane that's anti-love anti-joy anti-freedom uh, anti-progress and it, it breaks my heart and and when you finally see this you know it, it I mean every day I, ha I have a, a serious emotional moment at some point, right? Or I either want to punch the wall or just break down in tears because you recognize the pain that we have created. And not only that, but we're going to be dealing with it for so much, so many years in the future. These kids who have had the disrupted schooling, they're forever going to be behind. The babies and the toddlers who were being taken care of by carers with masks and missed out on language acquisition opportunities, the normal interaction between mother and child, which teaches about empathy, Right? Are these kids going to grow up to be sociopathic or at least delayed in their development? We're going to have to somehow try to make up for that. Well, but those resources to make up for it will come from someone else. So there's, there's pain there too, right? Whoever doesn't get those resources. It's a zero-sum game. We only have so much in this world, so many resources to allocate. And, and we can't make up all of the, the, the costs that we have paid during this period without, without a reckoning, without, you know... <laughs>
feeling the pain. So it's, it's, um, it's a tragic, tragic thing. And I, I think it's going to be a, an area of research for, you know, those of us who have seen this. And, and we just, I can't not study this now. And for a couple of decades, probably into the future, it's going to be, you know, students and scholars really coming to understand this. And in psychology as well, there's a huge amount of work to be done because so many people during this period have been either part of the policy setting apparatus or in their local level vigilantes telling people you better mask up, you better do this, you better stay in your home, antisocial, inhumane, and, and failing to resist this, this totalitarian slide in their own society. And if you really understand that you've been part of that problem, that's going to be a shock psychologically. So we're going to have people waking up and being, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm thought, I, I imagine Matrix, you know, movie sort of wake up, you know, oh my God, this is what's been going on, right? And it's, that's a very sobering thing. And I think very, a lot of strength is needed to get through that psychologically and not come away with a sense that I'm a bad person. So I think the counseling services are going to be needed for 20 years. You know, I can't help think about the fact that in New York City, toddlers are still required to wear masks in school in kindergarten. I mean, I just, I, I can't, and, and, and of course there will be the people who will have to realize, oh my God, I did this. Yes. You know. There's mass social complicity here and uh, personal complicity. And I, I'm, I, I've never seen, and we've not seen what happens in that scenario in our lifetimes. What happens when people recognize that? And I don't think we're, we're anywhere near the point of really recognizing it. Uh, I mean, for, for the World Health assembly discussions about lockdowns are just one signal but also again in australia the you know the the rhetoric simply is not coming to terms with all of these costs yet we're still stuck accepting the the narrative that's been promulgated by politicians and so it will take another i think probably a couple of years um, until we really understand this but then it's going to be a, a very very big psychological weight and of course psychology was important at the start as well right i mean the fear we all felt in march and april Having seen all these videos, you know, the, the people falling over in China and, and in Milan and, and then New York City having all these cases and all these deaths and, uh, you know, people get very, very scared and then that, that changes the way we think. It literally changes how we process information. And that was the beginning of this, this zooming, narrow, tunnel vision focus on just COVID with everything else sort of left to do its own thing. And then we entered this fantasy world in which, yes, we thought we could simply press pause on an economy. You know, and then when we took our finger off, it would all be back to normal. <laughs> right? That's nuts, right? I mean, that's, that doesn't, that's not consistent with the way that the economic system actually works. You press pause. People are not in some state of suspended animation. You know, they, they continue to have to make choices. They have to compensate for what's been done to them. And so they, they start changing the way they allocate their resources and changing the people they, you know, they interact with on the, in the marketplace, maybe changing jobs. And that then means when you take your finger off the button, it's not the same place that it was. You've, you've broken links, you've, you've changed around people's, you know, people's lives, and it, can't, it doesn't, doesn't just go back to how it was. So that fiction was, and many other fictions, were able to be supported because we had such fear that was driving us. And that fear then also led into this crowd creation, this sort of herd mentality. Ma mass formation is what Matthias this Desmet is Desmet's, calls it. This is Desmet's yeah. uh, theory, exactly, but it's been thought of many, many times by, you know, previous thinkers as well. You know, the sociology of crowds, right? Men go mad in crowds and, and then they wake up slowly one by one. That's one of the, you know, the uh, previous sociologists' sayings. And 
And that is just what you've seen during this period. There's this whole group and then occasionally you'll have a conversation with one or two people one-on-one -on -one, and they recognize, oh, I see. And you can't see it when you're inside. But once you're outside of it, you know, that gives you the perspective to, to, to look and see, oh my gosh, those people literally can't think. They have literally outsourced their notion of what is true, what is moral, to a group. And they look to the group to, to dictate with every new day, what is today's truth? What is today's moral action? Oh, now it's now we need to use two masks. Okay, well, let me get on the horse and I'll make sure I am always wearing two masks and telling everybody else I need to too. Oh, now we have to all get vaccines? Okay, well, let's do that now, right? They are led by whatever the truth of the crowd is. They're not using their brains for their own independent thought. They're using their brains to rationalize the truth that the crowd gives them. And that's the scary part because in this period, it hasn't been IQ or education or you know, any kind of soft skill intelligence that has determined whether people have been sucked up into the crowd. It's just, were you actually thinking independently? Were you somehow able to, to separate yourself from this mass movement? Right? And those of us who are in the resistance, I think a lot of us are kind of weird humans. We, we don't, you know, we sort of, I had a very lonely childhood. I was always kind of on the outs and never in the in-group. And so I learned to, to examine my fellow man from afar. That really helped during this period because it meant that I just wasn't swept up with this stuff. I saw it as if through a, a, a microscope, you know, in, here in the Petri dish, look at all my fellow humans going mad, right? And this is a very common theme amongst those in the resistance I've spoken to, right? So somehow they were just resisting this, this sweeping up into the crowd and they held tightly to their own sense of morality, their own sense, they have a personal sense of what is true and they're used to using their brains not to rationalize something, that somebody else says, but to actually think through a puzzle. And in fact, the people who are most educated and, and most intelligent, and some of the tops of our best institutions, they have such big brains that they can rationalize almost anything <laughs> with a really good story, right? And, and that has been part of the problem as well. There have been you know, ridiculous rationalizations of, of lockdowns and everything else, and the people who actually you know, are making those rationalizations are, are the product of our best universities. These are really, really smart people. You'd like to be able to trust them. But it's not about that. It's not about intelligence. It's this social psychological dynamic. It's fascinating. So really, really enjoyed reading Laura Dodsworth's book from the UK, where State she examined exactly, examined how fear was actually pushed into the population deliberately. And she makes a very convincing case, even by government entities like the Spy yep. B unit and so forth. Maybe in the U.S. too. We don't have you know clear documentation how that played out, but certainly the media were pushing these kinds of things. Many of these establishment media. Yeah. So you know, and then you have someone like myself who's thinking to themselves, well, okay, I'm not personally worried about it. I'm mm -hmm. very healthy. You know, I I have some rough idea of the data. I'm pretty sure that it's uh, 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 I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I, I do want to do my part for society. Right. I'll throw on a mask. Maybe that'll help people. I had I'd heard different stories about masks, but in this case, why not? Right. Because if it can help somebody, I'll do it. Right. Especially the older people. Um, <laughs> you know, so so there's I imagine there's a lot of people like me who I think I was similar to you where I was looking at it a bit from the outside already. Yeah. But at the same time, I want to I don't I want to play my part. Yes. And, and do the good do good for society and I mean, so forth, yeah. So my co-author Paul Friders also early on was wearing masks around the place because he basically wanted people to feel more comfortable around him. 
right? And he thought, well, there's not much of a cost. Now, of course, if you think about what the costs are of masks, maybe for wearing it for one day is not a big deal. If you wear it for a, a reasonable amount of time, you are exposed to whatever's in the mask. And of course, you're using masks every single day. You're creating a huge mountain of environmental waste. You're also preventing people who may be deaf or hard of hearing from using your lips uh, as a signal of what you're saying. And you're impeding the language acquisition of small children. Um, you're also essentially you know, breathing your own uh, CO2 a little bit. So it's maybe not as healthy, particularly if you're running or doing some kind of activity. So there are costs. You know, but it seems in the short term that, oh, yeah, I can just do that and it's no big deal. Uh, so, so I do see that. Now, this whole time I have not worn a mask. I've, I've only worn uh, a pair of my own underwear on my face or also a, uh, a Guy Fawkes mask, you know, costume mask yeah. um, as, I, as a resistance. I, 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 see where you're, I see where you're going with this. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. I, I, um, I mean, I could, you know, I could go on with that. But it is, it is definitely this notion early on I was called in the, in the Australian media a neoliberal Trump cannot death cult warrior and a granny killer, right? The notion of granny killer was a very, very powerful one because, as you said, people want to do the right thing for their society. Now, it just happens to be that I think I'm doing the right thing for my society, right, in a different way by resisting totalitarian impulses of the ruling class and saying this is not going to be okay. And I live, I, I hope I live in a democratic society where I have the right to say that, right? That is a service to society. Even just putting the alternative view, even if I'm wrong, even if I'm wrong, right? Putting the alternative viewpoint out there in public so that we can discuss these things, we can discuss the most draconian, liberty-destroying policies that have been implemented in our generation, right? Healthily, as a population should be able to do, that's the signal of a healthy society, right? Is a pro-social thing. Taking the alternative position, it is a pro-social thing. As soon as we stop talking about stuff, whether it's COVID or, or gun policy or abortion policy or anything else, any kind of big issue, right? As soon as we stop talking about it, we start to die as a society. A healthy society invites and encourages discussion across the aisles of all the big issues, right? And we need so much more of that in our society today because what has happened during this period is a, is a regression in that sphere. As much as a regression in, in terms of inequality, we've regressed in terms of our ability to speak to each other. We've had this polarization. This is another psychological component, obviously. We now categorize people into the black and the white, you know, the right and the wrong, the, the good and the bad. And it's encouraged by social media. There's all sorts of reasons you can think of for why people have fallen into that kind of a heuristic. But they have. And actually really having these discussions where you bring out the nuance and you seriously, fearlessly weigh up the validity of different positions is almost a lost art. <laughs> and so we need so much more of that, starting in education, starting in schools, and to take our egos out of it. It's not about an individual person you know, being blamed as a granny killer. That's, that's, that's going to silence dissent. That is bullying. You're basically calling people you know, a name, just like we would in a school playground, right? The bully in the playground. That's not the kind of person that we want to be, you know, that we want to aim for, to be like. We yeah. want to be understanding and empathic and, and fearless, right? The only thing you have to fear is fear itself. Well, that was, you know, that was not followed as a prescript, right? Early on, particularly in Australia as well, we had the behavioral economics units, you know, helping governments to essentially nudge their people into accepting that this was a significant threat when it really wasn't. And we've had admissions of that. 
from people who are working in those in those units. We've had them say, look, yeah, this wasn't as serious as we were, you know. We pushed the fear thing we a pushing. little bit too far, perhaps. Yeah. Well, yeah. just that, you know, it was definitely out of proportion to what the actual threat was. Mm -hmm. and, and that was decided to be a good thing because that way we could get more compliance. Good Lord, right? As if compliance had no cost, again. Right? There's no cost to the lockdowns and the masks and the, all the other stuff, right? It's just this, this one-sided, non-unbalanced uh, tunnel vision focus on one thing, and, and we went right along with it. So it's, it's a tragedy. We need to recover so much now in our societies from the ability to think to the ability to actually do science and understand what science is, which is not a fixed thing, right? It's a, it's a moving, constantly moving, dynamic target. You're always searching for truth and never arriving there. You know, we need to, we need to rediscover joy and freedom and, and how great it is to kiss and hug each other and that, in fact, an individual person is not just a viral vector, right? He, he actually is your fellow man who can give you many positive things you know just sitting here this is probably positive for our immune systems right we are having a conversation it's positive we're we're thinking about issues we're connecting that's that's a good thing you know and and being exposed to all the you know many many viruses and bacteria that are on each other all the time that's part of the human condition as well right we're not perfect pure you know soaked up people right that that's actually bad for us to be super, super sanitized, right? And never exposed to viruses. That's, that's bad for our immune systems, it's bad for our health, um, and it's, it's not a natural state of humans. So we need to rediscover something about who we really are. A number of things you said, you know, as we've been talking, make, it kind of, you, know, you mentioned the matrix, you mentioned, you know, this very sanitized people, um, and you mentioned the way policy was implemented. And I can't help but thinking that a lot of the policy early on was based on models. Yes. Based on things that were completely kind of separated out from reality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, it turns out that a lot of the, the suppositions, a lot of the sort of variables that were introduced into the models were just simply orders of magnitude wrong. Yes. But there's this kind of, I, I can't help but thinking that is there kind of an ascendancy of people who function using these types of methods instead of having to deal with reality. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and those people making decisions because they believe that those types of structures actually, you know, work better or just, just that's, that's their bias because they work in modeling and they, and they believe that, that that's the way that, that you can come up with good, good answers. So, yeah. yes, it's a very good point and there are a few things to say. Uh, first, I think part of the draw of the model, the seduction of the model, is that it seems to be a way to simplify what is an incredibly complex reality. Particularly now when we have this bombardment constantly with information through the internet, social media, everything, right? And you need, again, heuristics as a human mind, you need heuristics to cope with all of this. And if someone comes and says, okay, here I've, I've reduced all of this complexity into this simple model, right? It's very seductive. And this is one of the reasons why not just politicians, but even scientists get sucked in to the idea that these very narrow, very uh, heavily uh, laden with assumptions kinds of stylized versions of reality are just as good as actually coming to terms with all of reality. And so most scientists these days, even in economics, but also in other fields, will have a very narrow focus. They, they, they study one particular kind of event or phenomenon or, or feature in a particular kind of context, and they publish in that area. They've specialized there. They get their publications, and that's their job, to, to, to do that very narrow focus. The broad-minded 
scientist, whether it's in social science or in hard sciences, is a, is a rare species these days, right? So, I mean, that, that is just, and that, that is kind of the way I think of myself and, and a couple of others, certainly Paul Friders and a couple of other people in this, in this you know, resistance mix are, you know, people who have, we may have specialty areas, but we also are interested in and we want to think about the broader society. And of course, it takes a lot of effort in the brain, you know, you're constantly having to weigh up, okay, well, eh, I have, to, I have to somehow reduce this part, but I don't want to reduce it too much because I want to keep some of the complexity. And you know, you're, you're constantly going around with this model of the whole world in your head. But the simulations of how virus X or you know, COVID or whatever else, and, and previously and with you know, HONN1 and you know, the other viruses, we've done the same thing. These models of how they would propagate throughout the species and this focus on r naughts and all these other things, right? The first, the first fallacy is there's nothing else in that model except the viral transmission right? And all the outcomes from the virus. Forget about cost of lockdowns, right? Forget about cost of trying to mitigate the spread. There's nothing in those models about costs. So it's inherently an uneconomic exercise. That's point one, right? Secondly, yes, as you said, there are so many assumptions in there about, you know, the fraction that need to be, you know, immune in order to slow this to that, or how much are we going to have, you know, and it's just, it's just judgment calls all over the place. And they have been wrong in the past, Right? Previous epidemiological simulations have been wildly off. And this time, not surprisingly, they were off again. Right? And, and even if you excuse it in the first few months, even if you excuse the reliance on these simulated models, right? after the data start coming in, after we had the princess, you know, the diamond princess and the, the ruby princess, we have these examples of what happens when a virus circulates in a closed environment. How many people actually die? How many people actually get sick? How much, I mean, we could have learned so much from those if we would just look at the data, but there was not any updating, right, during this process. And again, science is about updating, always. Here's new information. Does it fit with your theory? Does it fit with your predictions? If not, modify theory, because data is data. Like, that's what is happening in the real world. And this is how I came up with the counterfactuals and all of the other estimates for my cost-benefit analysis. I was not relying on a simulated model. I was relying on what has happened in different places in the world with this virus. You know, we have a, a saying in economics, all models are wrong and some are useful, right? All models are wrong is the most important part of that phrase. And, and it's because we just don't know a huge amount about viruses and people's resistance to them. And, and there's so much we don't know that it is, a, it is a fool's errand to expect that building a simulated model is going to give you something that is superior to just looking at what's happening in the world, particularly after you've had a few months to look at what's happening in the world. And again, update your actions. But by that point, you know, March, April, May, June of 2020, politicians were already on this line of, okay, we've got to go to the lockdowns and the, and the control of the transmission and undoing that, right? And it would basically would have for them been very politically difficult. And that's why I then say we, we, we have been seeing for two years now politics, not public health. Maybe it was public health at the start a little bit, but- a kind of a hyper-politicization almost, right? Exactly. That's what I'm thinking. But, but I want to talk about that a little more, but I'm just remembering listening to this. I think it was a UK modeler who was talking and, and his, and this was fascinating to me because it also spoke to something terribly wrong in the system. Yeah. He said, you know, it, I mean, this is extreme paraphrase. Okay. But roughly he said, I, yeah, I overestimated, but 
that's okay somehow, but I definitely couldn't have underestimated. I mean, roughly, like that wouldn't have been acceptable. Yeah. Right? He felt right. that was un. Uh, what, what is that? Well, that's it's right? the same thing we have with meteorologists, right? Where they, if they think there's any chance of rain, maybe, you know, 10% or more, they'll put on the forecast rain, right? Because they don't want to be caught out having predicted that it's going to be sunny, and so people plan for picnics or time outdoors, and then it rains, right? Because then people blame them more. It's the same thing with. The modelers, I think, right? If they are found out afterwards to have underballed, right, lowballed the estimates of people dying from a particular new threat, it makes them look casual and and you know unconcerned about the most important thing, which is you know people dying, right? Because that's the thing being looked at in those models, mm. rather than people dying from anything else, right? That we that we could invest in minimizing through other kinds of expenditures, other than you know the lockdowns, the masks, or whatever we were doing about COVID. We could have expended money on, on trying to promote people's health in other ways, right? But, but we didn't do that, and we spent the money instead on this other stuff. And again, that, that, that economic trade-off is just nowhere in any of these models, and it is nowhere in their incentives, in the incentives that are given to these simulated model runners. And so, yeah, I think that's exactly right. They, they do have a tendency, an incentive, to go for the more extreme estimates. Because also then, yeah, they're going to get more attention, right? I mean, everybody at some level, wants status, power, money, you know, attention. And this is a good way to get it. If you can scream about, oh my God, there are going to be lots of people dying. And look, my special fancy, you know, scientific model says so, right? A lot of people are going to be sucked in by that. A lot of people don't understand it. There's folks that they, they like the idea of being able to see everything on a console and sort of nudge things in a particular simplif incredibly simplified society. You know, I, I'm thinking about you know, the push for digital uh, vaccine passports, for example, but yeah. or, you know, sort of the, the logical conclusion of that would be like the social credit system that's been implemented in China, where there have been examples, right? Yeah. Where, you know, if someone, for example, isn't vaccinated, they're prevented from traveling, yeah. right, in any way, and yeah. they have a red, their phone lights up red, and that was has actually been used uh, against, like, lawyers working with dissidents. Suddenly, these people happen to be vaccinated and so forth, but nope, they worked with the wrong person. Suddenly, yeah. I can't travel because I, I, oh, I have a, I have a health issue now, yeah. right? So the combination, I'm thinking about these people that can sit you know, in front of a console and say, okay, these are the right elements of society. These are the, you know, correct, righteous elements of society. These are the problematic elements of society. I'm going to, you know, sort of let these do what they want. These ones can't because clearly they're maybe spreading disinformation, right? We yeah. haven't even talked about that yep. yet, right? Yep, yep, yep. Um, there's a lot of concern that structures to be able for someone or some entity or maybe an, even an AI, which is the most disturbing to me, uh, to be able to kind of look at people and their sort of personal information and their status, yep. whether it's vaccination or political or something, and kind of make decisions mm. on the fly mm. uh, using these, you know, supercharged uh, information systems. Yeah, it's it's a serious issue, and certainly in China, we have seen uh, you know really negative outcomes from that kind of system. I'm a little less worried in a Western democracy that that kind of dystopian vision will actually come to pass because I basically don't think that people will accept it. Um, you know, if you were to, to go to the newspaper and say, because I was working with this guy, I got banned from such and such, right? That, I think, surely would make a splash, even with the, the co-optation of the media during the COVID period. 
that's a, that's a personal insult. It's not about being pro-social towards your grandmother. That's about just being able to live your life. And certainly in America, that is something that we still hold dear and we still think is important. And you see that in some of the states that are opening up. But, you know, this is not even about COVID. This is about just generally being able to be free, right? It's the land of the free, supposedly. And I think if we push back enough, that sort of thing won't happen. And the second thing I would say is this notion that there's a person up there or a group, you know, who can dictate, you know, here's how you, these people are good, these people are bad. I mean, that is a dystopian image. And there's nobody who actually in the bureaucracy of the United States could possibly do that. The bureaucracy is a massive behemoth of a thing, right? And it is so disorganized. Most people who work for it are, again, looking at some little tunnel vision area, right? They're not looking at the big picture. So, you know, yes, you'd have to get AI to intermediate, but then if you have that kind of mistake or somebody, you know, or not mistake, but just someone isn't able to do something because it's gonna, there's going to be an outcry. There was in Australia, so we had the robo-debt scandal where, mm. you know, this AI was, was mediating whether or not people were supposed to, you know, pay off some debt or whether they had paid it off or whether they were late. And they sent, you know, this, this automated system sent messages to all of these poor people, you know, who are on Centrelink, our welfare system, it caused enormous stress, and it got into the papers, and it was a huge scandal, right? How can we do this, right? Some person needs to look at that. We can't just, you know, punish people by machine. So, so that kind of give, that gives me hope, right? Even in Australia, the, one of the most docile, sheep-like countries in the, to, in the COVID period that we've seen, even there we have seen a huge pushback against AI-mediated punishment. So uh, as long as we continue to have a press that is able to stand out against that, which they don't have in China, right? As long as we have the capacity to, to be free, to actually say, this is not okay, and we value the diversity of, of our people and our, you know, different choices are, you know, considered to be important rather than having everyone do the one thing. That's how you get really dumb really fast as a society. We should, know allow people to make different choices. Don't monitor them. Don't say, this is bad, this is good, except for, you know, basic rules, right? Like, don't kill each other. Um, that, I think that will protect us. Gigi, in America and in Canada, we, we don't have that for COVID or many other even social issues. We don't have a press that will do this. This is something a lot of people are deeply concerned about because without the, let's call it the legacy or establishment media, basically validating all of the things that you've just been talking about, giving its stamp of approval, pushing, pushing the fear, I'm not even sure any of this could have happened, actually. Yes, right. I agree with the role of media being hugely important during this time. But I'm heartened again by another example from history um, in the Napoleonic times. And this is something you can look up. I'm sure you've probably already seen it, right? When Napoleon was exiled to Elba and then he, he escaped, the initial reaction of the uh, Parisian newspapers was to have a headline, you know, monster escapes from Elba or something, right? And as he got closer and closer and closer to Paris, the language changed. Right? So it, it became, oh, not monster, but, you know, the previous emperor or whatever, or, you know, horrible person became, oh, this guy. And then by the time he had arrived in Paris, it was Emperor Napoleon, you know, re, you know, takes up his rightful throne again or something like this, right? So the way the press can change with the, the, the winds of power is phenomenal. Right, right now, it is still to the advantage of the press to be running with the standard COVID story running with the story that, you know, lockdowns helped us and the masks are a good thing and vaccines are the silver bullet and all this other stuff, right? But at some point, 
when the power dynamics shift, when we finally recognize and come to terms with the fact that this was a massive mistake on almost every level, the press will read that writing on the wall. They will not go down with the politicians. They will turn against them because they want to be with power. And once the power is back with the people, with the, the, the human side of our existence rather than the, the technocratic side or the bureaucratic side, then I think the press will, will look a lot freer. They will certainly be speaking all of these truths much more freely. Again, I don't expect it for a couple of years. Um, but then also I would say your channel and so many of the other alternative channels have been incredibly important to the resistance around the world. So when you say there's no freedom, well, we're having this conversation, right? So you know, maybe it's not in the New York Times, maybe it's not in the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, although I will say there have been some dissident pieces in some of those, um, those venues, but you know, we are having this conversation. And the same thing is true in Australia. We have some dissident press, and, and this is a perfect opportunity for those, those journalists who really want to make a stamp and do something challenging and interesting in their life. Great, start a new network. That's what I expect, not just in media, but in, in health, in the legal profession, in psychology, and, and I'm starting to see it. And we're starting to see new networks for the provision of mental health support, for example, in Australia. Our resistance group has somebody who has started up such a thing to help people who have been damaged by the COVID policies because their standard therapists aren't even going to admit that that could possibly have been the case. So they can't speak freely. Right? They're not allowed to feel bad about the fact that they were withheld from school for two years or whatever. Right? It has to be, oh, you're doing this for your grandmother. Let's talk about the real problem. <laughs> no, the real problem is I couldn't go to school for two years. You, know, you took me out of my normal you know, development enhancing experiences for two years. And now I'm depressed or anxious and you know, suicidal, whatever it is. So to be able to have those open discussions, you need a network of mental health professionals who allow you to speak freely. She is starting this network. And the same thing I expected, we had that in, in the UK as well, an alternative health network to the NHS, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what, you, that's what people will do because we are incredibly creative, we're incredibly innovative, we're incredibly energetic, and we love each other. We want there to be services to help each other. And when the existing networks that are supposed to provide those services get too tainted, too corrupt, too, too distant from their actual mission, we got to create another one. You know, Gigi, I'm a big optimist as well, right? And these, you know, these types of, there's a huge precedent for these types of parallel structures. This is what happened in my own sort of ancestral country of Poland, mm -hmm. right? As uh, these institutions were able to kind of build under communism and then as things kind of changed, they were able to, to you know, play a huge role in these sort of upgraded, updated, freer uh, functioning structures. So I guess the thing I want to end on, and of course, you're talking about this resistance that's out there. You just, you started talking about, you know, developing these par parallel structures. Certainly these health systems very much, I know of several that are being created already, already kind of exist loosely, but are being kind of more codified in America yeah. and in other places. I guess the thing that I keep thinking about is there is going to be this reckoning. I believe that we're going to get through this. I believe that, right? But there is going to be this reckoning when all sorts of people are going to have to come to terms with the fact that they participated in something terrible, yep. something that really hurt society, that hurt their children, yep. that hurt that that they may have lost loved ones in the process, right? They may have. I, it's a, it's hard for me even to fathom how big that is, yeah. right? How do we help people go through that and society go through that? Uh, I mean, I and frankly, just to realize first, because without that, right? 
This is the biggest challenge that the resistance faces. How do we reach people who are still in, in the clutches of this crowd dynamic, who still believe the political, the lies, right? The, all of the all the craziness and actually believe that if you don't believe that then you're hurting people and it's so difficult because they're spewing insults and abuse right how do you come out and hug someone who's spewing abuse at you right how do you do that you have to reach into the the deep recesses of your heart and say i love you anyway i love you anyway right and and really accept these people as part of humanity they have shown us they have shown us they've given us a gift to to be able to see what humanity can become if we are not more careful stewards of these social psychological processes, if we don't keep better tabs, if we don't have better institutions, if we don't be, if we're not alert and aware and, and cognizant of our duty and our responsibility to protect the proper functioning of our societies and the, and the humane functioning, this is what can happen, right? So thank you for showing me this, right? Try to find something in yourself that allows you to give, to still give, to these people who really think you're evil, right? That, that, they really do, right now. They really think you're evil. And then continue to hug them and hold them as they recognize, oh my, it's I who was evil. It's I who participated, who helped to support this, right? I mean, think of what has happened to people who have lost a child because of a mistake they've made, for example, you know? There are people who, you know, I should have gone and seen him in the morning, but I, I waited for 15 minutes, and then by the time I got there, he had overdosed, or something like this, right? These parents will beat themselves up for, for a lifetime. So it's that sort of thing, but for the whole society, and at different levels, depending on what the person's role was during the period, right? But recognize that the pain is going to be acute if they recognize this themselves, and the only way to get through that is love, compassion, empathy, support, acceptance, and recognition that these people are just as human as, as you are, right? We share humanity. Think about the things we share. Do not think about the divisive aspects that have been shoved down our throat from the messaging as well. You know, the vax, the unvax, the mask, the unmasked, the good, the bad, the clean, the, the ugly or dirty, right? No. The things we share are much bigger, and so focus on that. Help them to focus on that. Help them to love you back. It's the only way we can get through this period. Well, Gigi Foster, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. It's my great pleasure to be here. Thanks, Jan. Thank you all for joining Gigi Foster and me for this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kellek. The Epoch Times is growing quickly, and we're currently hiring an associate producer to join the Epoch TV team to work on both American Thought Leaders and Cash's Corner. It's a time of rampant misinformation and propaganda, and you'll be part of the solution as we bring back honest journalism. If you're interested or you know someone who might be a good fit, head over to ept.ms slash associate producer. That's ept.ms slash associate producer, all one word. We look forward to hearing from you.